Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may be someone who, if you are driving this city regularly, I mean, you don't have to put your hand up and admit to this, but you may be one of those people who has received a little unpleasant item in your mail with a picture of your car and maybe you going through a red light, being caught on a red light camera and having to pay a little fine to the great city of Hamilton. You wouldn't be alone, by the way, back in, well, not back, last year in 2022, nearly 20,000 vehicles got dinged with a red light camera ticket. It's not a small number. Mike Field is the Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance. Joins us now. Mike, how are you today? Very good. How about you? I am I'm terrific. Well, look, I haven't received one of those things in the mail lately, so I'm terrific. <laughs> Very good, yeah. Uh, I'm, are, are you surprised that now three or four, or I don't even know how many years into this program now, that the number is still this high? Uh, we've, we've been running the red light program uh, since about 20, 2000. We're one of the first municipalities in Ontario to have red light cameras. Um, the, the numbers have, uh, you know, dropped, but they stabilize at some point. So when a new red light camera goes in, uh, we'll see a, a high number of infractions initially, and then it'll drop and, and seems to stabilize. Um, but that's kind of typical for uh, red light cameras, uh, wherever they're used within the province or, or, you know, even outside of Canada. Okay, because when I look at the numbers, and I'm looking at 19, 20, 21, and 22, we're in the ballpark. Uh, 2019, 20,289 goes down into the 19,000s, and in the 17,000s in 2020 and 21. Now, that, of course, was also during COVID when there were fewer cars on the street. And uh, Last year, 19,131. It's always in the same ballpark. So is this suggesting that this isn't having the effect of being a deterrent, or are we talking about more lights that have cameras on them? Uh, no, we've added more cameras, uh, typically about five a, uh, five a year. We're at 42 cameras across the city right now. So as time has gone on, we've added more and more cameras. So uh, that's part of the equation as well. Um, and there is a reduction. They do work. They, they, um, they reduce the number of right angle collisions that happen at those uh, intersections. That's really the main purpose. Right angle collisions are really dangerous collisions that can often result in injuries or even fatalities. Uh, so we have, you know, t- statistics showing that they work. Uh, there is an increase in, in uh, other types of collisions around them, but those are, you know, rear-ended or rear-ender or sideswipe collisions that don't as often result in injuries. So I, they're serving a really important purpose across the city. I did, I did read about the fact that the rear-end collisions were way up, and I'm trying to think. So is this the, is this the symptom? Like, you know, when you when you get a needle, sometimes it helps you in the long run, but you have a sore arm for a while. Is this the the sore arm of a red light camera? If people now know they're going to get a ticket they slam on the brakes when the light turns red and then they get dinged from behind yeah definitely i would say that that is the case uh you know before the camera was there people were uh, were maybe running the red light and uh, rather than slowing down when they see uh, the red coming they would step on the pedal but now it's the reverse because they don't want to receive uh, one of those tickets so it increases maybe, uh, you know, people's reaction to it and resulting in short stopping and people getting into rear-end collisions. And those numbers, those rear-end collisions, I mean, as much as the right-angle collisions are way down, the rear-end collisions are way up, like almost double, right? They are, yeah, but they're they're kind of a trade-off of the situation. So we're lowering, you know, the chance of someone being injured or killed uh, from the implementation of the red light camera, but we're sacrificing that for an increase in, in uh, rear end collisions. But 
rear end collisions are, are you know, more rarely resulting in uh, injuries or fatalities, maybe property damage in the sense that, you know, you need to do some uh, body work on your car afterwards. But it's a trade-off uh, between one collision versus the other. Obviously, we want to try and remove the collisions that, that hurt people and kill people. So when you say that the numbers of cameras each year go up by four or five or whatever it is, as I say, the, the numbers overall, the number of infractions in the ballpark of being similar, um, are you finding that in the established areas where there are cameras, the numbers go down? Even if the overall is the same, are the established cameras driving down numbers at those places? They, they do, yeah. So when we install a new camera... Um, those numbers will stabilize or continue to go down over time. Um, and uh, when we see, you know, locations where uh, they're not trending downwards or continue to trend downwards, we look at from the built environment perspective to see if there's something else that we can do to try and reduce the number of red light runners in, in those lo- at those locations. Uh, the, the number one place, have I got this right? The number one place is at Cannon and Hess. Was that the number one spot? It is, yeah. Yeah, from last year, that's the number one location. Okay, so that's right by Hess Street Public School, right, in that area? It is. You're correct. So, okay, yeah. so what would, be, what would be the re... Any idea, and maybe this is only a theory, I don't know if there is an actual answer, but any idea why that, of all places, would be the place that would have the most people going through? Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to that. I know some locations, there's, you know, a very obvious reason if they're closer, Maine and Dunder and King and Dunder and are kind of... Uh, uh, high offenders for locations too, and you have the highway. Either you're coming off the highway, or you're rushing to get on the highway. So there's, you know, some locations sure. where you kind of look at yep. it and say, yeah, that's, you know, people have a tendency to maybe rush through the intersection. And there's some locations where it's harder to explain why there would be a tendency for people to run red lights. And that, and that number one location is maybe one that I'll define uh, with that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I drive by there regularly, and I mean, I can't think of any reason why that would be more of an, a, a worse intersection than anywhere else in the city. I don't quite know, but um, I was interested, though, that it seems as though, and correct me if I've got this wrong, all of the top intersections for most number of tickets are in the lower city. Is that because there's more traffic down there, plain and simple? Is it because there are more cameras down in the lower city? What, what is there a reason why it's not in the suburbs or not on the mountain somewhere? Yeah, it has a lot to do with the volume and the road that it's placed on, uh, for sure. When we do the evaluation selection for, for locations, we're looking for data to support uh, you know, the installation of the red light camera. Um, so you do see, or we do see a lot of volume. So Main Street and King Street pop up a lot with uh, having red light cameras. There's a lot of volume. Uh, so obviously with more cars, there's going to be more uh, opportunities for people to run red lights. Uh, the, the uh, this is not the same thing, but you also have the, the speed, the automatic photo radar ones, but they move, they, they, they get moved from location to location. The red light cameras, they never move, right? Once they're in, they just stay there. Yeah, initially back in 2000, we had cameras that kind of rotated, but uh, the programs evolved and there's there locations that stay once they're there. They're there every day. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week at that location. They never change location. And it would probably, and you know, this is not your call to make, but it probably would be not something that council is going to want to do too much because it does bring in some significant money, like three and a half, almost three and a half million dollars last year in revenue that it brought in for the city. That's, that's, I, I know that that, that's, and again, not your call. I know that's that not, that's not why they would say they're there, but it does bring in a lot of money. 
it, it does bring in revenue and that revenue um, when the program was established way back, that revenue was earmarked to be reinvested in roadway safety initiatives. So we use those funds to, uh, to, to, you know, pay for the cameras, the function of the cameras, but we also use that to do other roadway safety initiatives across the entire city. Uh, so it's been a really valuable uh, revenue source and, and, you know, we're, all those people who are running red lights and doing things that they shouldn't be doing, uh, we're, we're using that money to uh, improve the safety of all road users across the city. So it's a, it's a great program. Um, and when we, um, when we want to use that money, it goes into a reserve. We have to go to council and say, this is what we want to use it for and uh, get approval for council to, to do that. One more thing before I let you go. Again, it, different thing, red light cameras, obviously, and the photo radar thing, everyone knows that's a different thing. But when you look on the map of where the photo radar, now you don't have 2022 numbers yet, but for 2021, when you look on the map, totally different part of town where you're getting more people in the photo radar big numbers, uh, mostly on the mountain or out in the east end. Again, any theory on why certain parts of town you'd have more red light runners and other parts of town you'd have more speeders? Yeah, we we, um, we have a kind of a selecting criteria for those automated speed enforcement cameras as well. And we look at data that we've collected over time. Uh, but we've also looked at a couple other factors of, of um, you know, what's around the street. Are there, um, you know, areas that we want to make sure that people aren't speeding, like schools or community centers, that sort of thing. So there's some other selective selective criteria that we use. Uh, for those cameras, um, there there is you know the, the built environment, the way that roads are designed. Uh, you know, if it's a dead straight road with uh, really wide pavement, it can uh, create situations where people will have a tendency to speed uh, on it. So it has a lot of factors involved in uh, in what causes speeding or what uh, you know people may speed on a particular road. But we use data to help choose those locations. Um, including kind of the exposure of, of risk for um, of users, because that's the ultimate uh, kind of purpose of that is reducing the risk for drivers and pedestrians and cyclists. That's Mike Field. He's the Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance for the city. Mike, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have talked on this show in the past about this issue, uh, but it keeps coming up, so we're going to keep talking about it. And it's about bonuses to federal public employees. And we have just learned in the last couple of days that for 2022, federal public servants met met their performance goals just 60% of the time, apparently. Not a huge, huge number, not a huge rousing amount of success. However, those same employees got just under $200 million in bonuses last year. That means in the last, well, in the time through COVID, basically, it's about half a billion dollars that federal public servants have received in bonuses, thousands and thousands of them, which is, I think, for a lot of people, a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, Stephanie Cousy is the MP for Calgary, Minipore. Uh, she's also the opposition critic for the Treasury Board, joins us now. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate this. Thank you for having me, Scott. Uh, so let me go there, because as I say, I think for a lot of people, they are going to be really puzzled by how it is that a bunch of people who are, well, if you're basing it on the success rate of reaching performance goals, are doing a mediocre job, are getting pretty extravagant bonuses. How is this happening? 
Well, I mean, it's a great question. This government definitely has no problem spending money. We just went through the uh, estimates process, and this is the first year that government spending has surpassed $400 billion. Uh, that is no small amount. Uh, and when you consider where these funds are going to, and you see something such as these performance bonuses, uh, as you mentioned, without the performance, um, it is incredibly frustrating. So it's a good question as to why this is happening, because it shouldn't be, because um, it, it certainly in in all of the jobs that I've had, if you're not doing a good job, you are shown the door, you're not given a bonus. And as you mentioned, 89% of federal executives received yearly bonuses during the pandemic. Um, yet, as you mentioned, with dismal results. So it's a good question as to why this is happening, because it frankly shouldn't be. Well, and again, I mean, look, I understand that going through COVID, there were challenging times and things like the passport offs and things. There were extenuating circumstances. So I'm not sitting here and I probably don't think you are either saying we should have fired everybody. But I'm not sure that we also should have rewarded everybody to this point. Like, I think there's a level of understanding of the circumstance, but I don't know that means we have to add more to it. No, that's a really good point. And I think you raise um, you know, two important points there. One is that these services that that uh, weren't being delivered were of serious consequences to Canadians. Canadians who didn't receive their passports had to cancel vacations or, or not be able to attend major life events such as marriages or funerals as a result of the government's incompetence. We saw incredible delays at airports. Uh, that was a result of the government's um, inability to come up with solid plans for the airline sector or, or um, even uh, air air airport controls. And as a result, um, these individuals, these executives should not have received these these ex extravagant bonuses. And, and yet they did. So these are services that had a serious impact on Canadians. And the second point is that the pandemic is a time where many Canadians were financially suffering because their sectors were closed down entirely, their hours were cut as a result of the impacts of the pandemic. And we're still continuing to see that now as we see inflation, um, cost of living uh, increases. So these these individuals receive these bonuses at a time where Canadians weren't receiving services that had significant impact on their lives. And at the same time, they were Canadians were suffering as a result of either losing their job, having their hours cut back, and then now as a result of inflation and cost of living. That really stings um, to you know the average person, the average family just trying to make it here in Canada, just trying to get by, trying to keep a roof over their head, trying to keep food on, on their table. And to see uh, these executives receive, I think it was over half a billion dollars through fiscal years 2019-20 and 2021-22. That really stings for Canadian Scott. Well, I, I think yesterday, if I heard the quote correctly, the finance minister talking about what the budget was going to be coming up, the line was, and I'm paraphrasing, we can't do everything for everybody in this one. And yet it seems they can do everything. The government does seem willing to do everything for public servants in this case that 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 i think is the frustration to a lot of people is that their taxes are going to 
bonuses, whether people like the idea of paying for public servants in general, I think they're okay with that, but it's the bonuses that I think is going to drive people nuts. Yeah, you know, I think Canadians are are reasonable, generous people. I was always taught you are you are happy to pay your taxes because you are contributing to society. You are an active participant in society. But guess what? For those taxes, you expect the government to deliver um, the, a, a basic a basic amount of services and basic services that government is put in place to deliver. And in this situation, even though, as you mentioned at the outset of our conversation, that they did not meet uh, these these performance objectives 60% of the time, they they received these bonuses. So I think it's incredibly frustrating to, to Canadians. And I think that um, the budget will be very telling uh, to see if this government has gotten the message from Canadians that they are they are um, taxed out to the max a lot of people are are digging into their last bits of credit and and they are not willing to tolerate any more unnecessary expenses such as these bonuses uh, that that we've seen paid out over the past few years okay so here's the big question then is that this is you've pointed to the fact that it's this government, but are these bonuses baked in? Uh, if if your party was to be elected in the next election, whenever that may be, is this something that cannot happen? Or are these drawn into the contracts and drawn into the union agreements and drawn into whatever else? So it kind of has to happen. Is this going to be the same no matter who's in power? You know, I think that incentives are always very important for employees and for management, no matter which sector that you're in. And I do think that um, the government will have to keep an eye on spending uh, and what that means for Canadians who work hard for their money and pay these taxes. So I I can't say as to... um, exactly what would happen under a conservative government. But I will say that government always holds the pen uh, to to create uh, the the legislation um, that is that is implemented uh, to hire and pay public servants. So I, fundamentally, I think um, whether or not these these bonuses are baked in, to use your phrasing, government is always responsible for the expenditures of the public purse. And if, if those need to be um, re- reevaluated, um, at the very least tied to performance, uh, successful performance, which in in back when I was in school meant eighty or higher, not under sixty percent. Then then that's something that has to be done. And I think people would agree with that. I just wonder if this is something that can be done. Is this if this is part of what is what is contractually obligated to these people? Then we've got a system where it doesn't matter who's in power. You're always going to have these bonuses going for work that may be quite mediocre. And and again, I, I can't say. I do know that there are several unions that are in negotiation right now um, with, for their contracts uh, with the federal government. I'm not sure what the outcomes of those will be, and I'm not sure if bonuses will be um, discussed or or implemented. Having said that, um, 
most unions do fall outside of the uh, management classification um, of government. But, you know, fundamentally, I always believe uh, if if you want something to change it, as government, it, it can be done. So I do think that uh, government can and should look seriously at uh, at 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 bonus compensation to ensure that at the very least that it is earned and merited. Stephanie Cusey, uh, she is the opposition critic for the Treasury Board. Uh, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Scott. You have a great day. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.